Heavenly Father, as we come together this day to celebrate the work that you have done, the day that you have made, Lord, let us rejoice and let us see your joy. And Lord, we also ask that as we seek you, that you would reveal yourself to us more and more in your word and sacrament, that we might die to self and live to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we can't say it enough, right? Alleluia, the Lord is risen. Yeah, sometimes you can even get three at the end. But it gets complicated, right? We don't know. It changes. Good. All right. So here we are on the other side of Holy Week. And I've grown up commemorating Holy Week as long as I can remember growing up in the church. Uh, I don't know that I've ever missed a service of Holy Week. At least that I can remember. My dad's shaking his head over there. He doesn't think so. But this year I did for the first time ever. And it's interesting that as I was standing here in this pulpit last week talking about the suffering and passion of our Lord and urging each one of us to enter in some small way into suffering and coming through in resurrection, as the collect we prayed for Palm Sunday says, um, I had no idea what lay ahead of me this week. Um, I know that you also entered into this time of preparation. I see that from the attendance figures that uh, Deacon Mark and Father Joshua um, recorded, and I also know that um, you have not come unprepared for the resurrection. But I was prepared in a new way. I had no idea that my wife Leah would give birth on Holy Monday. And no idea that I would have vividly before me an example of pain bringing forth new life. In a way, I was prepared for Holy Week, just observing that vividly, in a way that I have never been prepared before, both looking at the agony and the joy, and in some small way, able to compare to our Lord's journey through Jerusalem to the cross, to the grave, and then finally, to the sky. My joy is overshadowed by God's joy. God the Father's joy at the resurrection today is so much beyond anything that we could feel or understand. As we saw last week, it was out of God's love that he sent his son Jesus, the suffering servant Isaiah, the prophet tells us, to die for the sins of humanity. God's only son Jesus offered himself up on a cross to pay the penalty with agony and death that we deserved. And this was the plan from the beginning. This was not some second plan that God came up with or some backup thing. But no, this was the plan for God to restore humanity to himself. 
And so, though God was not surprised, God the Father nevertheless rejoices in this victory, this Easter Day victory. He rejoices with us, and he rejoices for us. In the passage read last night at the Easter Vigil, I believe Emily read it for us, actually, from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, we see the Lord's joy when we read, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. That's Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The intensity of God the Father's joy is seen in that passage, but it's also seen in the Isaiah passage of our first reading today. Did you catch it? Look with me at that first reading from Isaiah chapter 25, specifically starting at verse 6. It's on the inside of your scripture insert as an alternate first reading. The imagery is lush and lavish. God is throwing a party out of his joy. Look at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Do you see the Lord's joy in this? What day are we talking about? Well, Isaiah is looking forward to Easter Day, that first Easter, that day of resurrection, when Jesus would bring victory. Verse 7 tells us that the victory of God is not just about this party, but this party is because God is celebrating with his people, that something has been done for his people. Look at verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up this covering and this veil spread over all nations. What's the prophet talking about here? Well, as we look at the text, the word veil here can also be translated shroud. Shroud. Like the linen that you wrap a body in before it's entombed. And so this idea that humanity has this veil, this covering, this shroud over it, is here in Isaiah, hearkening back to that first sin that Adam and Eve brought into the world and passed down to each and every one of us, what we call in the church original sin. The fact that this Paul, this shroud, lies across humanity. And with it, it's brought a separation between God and man. It's brought a separation that has shame attached to it, reproach attached to it, distance spiritually, and finally, physical death itself. We inherently know that this type of existence is not how it's supposed to be. We know that. Death and suffering is real. But it's not the reality that God created for us. All we have to do is look at the Garden of Eden and see that story. God created us to be in communion with him, in, in the garden with him. 
And again, at the vigil last night, we read about God's design for us. But Adam and Eve caused this drape or this veil to come upon all peoples, all nations. But look at what God has promised to do. He has promised to swallow it up. To swallow it up. In verse 8, he elaborates on what the veil is. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord hath spoken. It's hard for us as human beings to even think about what a world without pain, suffering, and death looks like, right? We're kind of like the fish that's been in water all of its life. They can't even picture what it's like to be out of water. And so it is with us. And yet we are created in the image of God with this knowledge that that's not how it's supposed to be. And God here says that he is going to remedy it. He'll swallow up death. I think it's interesting imagery. He'll swallow it up. The idea here is that he'll eat it. He'll consume it. He's not just going to take the veil off. He's not just going to throw it on the ground, but he is going to eat it and take it into himself so that we cannot suffer from it anymore. That's how much God loves you. That's how much God cares about your pain and your hurt and the loss that, that sin and death brings, whether it's our own sin or other people's sin or just sin from living in the world. God is not indifferent to our sin, but he's also not indifferent to the pain that it's caused. Socrates, some 400 years earlier than Christ, writes in his Apology, harm and the fortunes of men are not matters of indifference to God. And yet Isaiah here, the prophet, is much more vivid, talking about God wiping away tears from faces as a mother would her child. The commentator John Oswald writes this. He says, How much more expressive is the picture of the master of the universe tenderly wiping the tear-stained faces as a mother might her child's? He's touched by that which rends our hearts. And his purpose begun in Christ is is to put an end to it all. The beginning of the victory of Easter is all about this. It's all about this battle that God has won. This is the day that the Lord has made. That beginning of the victory started at Bethlehem with God becoming man. And it secretly went to Good Friday where God dies as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. The devil thinks that he's won on Good Friday, that he's killed God, but it's actually the beginning of his undoing. As Jesus bursts forth from the tomb on Easter morning, the devil's defeat is sealed and certain. St. Mark records for us how Mary Magdalene, Mary, James's mother, and Salome go to the tomb expecting to anoint the dead body of Jesus, only to find an angel who calms them and tells them whom they seek, and then says, he is not here, he is risen. These women could not know that these words were not just to inform them 
but an announcement to the world, to the angels, to the demons, to Satan himself, that Jesus has risen and has brought with him victory over sin and death. They couldn't even take in the earthly side of it. The idea that this man whom they loved, whom they followed, now whom they saw crucified, is alive again. The scriptures tell us it's astonishing to them, and they flee. But that's not the end of their story, of course. It's also fitting that an angel here in the tomb is a messenger of God announcing to the world the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus coming forth from the dead, just as an angel was appeared in the skies to the shepherd on Christmas, announcing the coming of the Messiah. So here we have another bookend. And so that first Easter morning, Isaiah the prophet's prophecy began to be fulfilled. Friends, as of Jesus' rising from the dead, death is being swallowed up as we speak. It doesn't always feel that way, but that's the reality. Look again at verse 25, verse 9, or chapter 25 of Isaiah, verse 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. As followers of Jesus, we, too, often lose our way. We often forget this reality. Like the women who are astonished at the angel, it seems too good to be possible. It seems like suffering and death is the permanent reality, but it's not. We ask, can new life really be the reality? Can the end actually not be death, but birth? In this world, especially in this past year, we've seen what has mistakenly been called the reality of hopelessness, suffering, and death. Even with the good news of advances in the vaccine, pain and death that we've seen seems like it can't be undone. But for the Christian, that's not the reality. The reality is that we not need not fear or dread anything in this world. For Christ has conquered this world. The reality is that as St. Paul tells to the Colossians in our epistle reading, Christians ought to remember that you don't need to fear anything because you have already died. You have already died. What's he mean by that? Look with me at Colossians chapter 3. Verse 3, the very short epistle reading on page 3 of your insert. For you have died, St. Paul writes, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Well, what does this mean? Obviously, the people that St. Paul's writing to in the Colossian church in the first century are long dead now, right? But they weren't at the time of this writing. That's not Paul's, Paul's point. He's, digging, he's going at something else here. What St. Paul is digging at here is one of the central paradoxes in Christianity. That the world will never understand. 
and that we as Christians, if we're honest, struggle to understand. And that is that to truly live, we must first die to self. What the death that's being talked about here is that we have to die to ourselves in Christ so that we can live. It's paradoxical because it's the exact opposite of what we think. That to gain our true identity, we must lay down our self-made identities. We must lay down our self-formed identities. Our world preaches a life of self-achievement and self-actualization. Look around you in the world. It's all around you. It is the water that we swim in. Messages about becoming your real self. Somehow you can't express yourself. And somehow if you can't express yourself, then you're worth less. And that you haven't discovered your full identity. If only you can get to that, then then everything will be all right. Then you'll be happy. But anybody that stands in the way is denying your rights and is denying your identity. We see it all over politics. We see it all over social and cultural commentary today. People are utterly wrapped up in the current world and in making their own identities. It isn't just money or power anymore either. People truly think that they can make and therefore unmake themselves, their, their nature itself. They think that they can change the rules. They think that they can be their own god and master. And they see anyone who says otherwise as oppressive, as trampling on them, as keeping them from whom they are supposed to be. But the fruit of that is bitter, friends, because it's a trap. And the end result of that trap is crushing. Jesus has a message that's the exact opposite of what our world offers. It's a message of true life and hope. Our world says, be anything you want to be. Jesus says, be who I created you to be. Our world says, do whatever makes you happy. Jesus says, only I know what will make you happy. Follow me. Our world says, your best life is just over the next hill. That next hill of achievement or power or money or that satisfaction for fighting for a political cause or justice or fighting for the disenfranchised or that change that changes your status or your job, a change in your relationship, a change in your sexuality, though that hill, it's, it's just there. If you just crest that hill and get over the top, then you'll be happy, says our world. But friends, that's false. And it's actually cruel. It's designed to be cruel. Because it's from the father of lies. It's from the person who did rule this world in sin. Satan, our adversary. And there's always another hill to climb. There's always another fight. There's always another change that needs to occur. Jesus does not say your best life now. He says your best life later. For now, die to the desires of this life and follow me. When St. Paul writes this to the Colossians church, he's no doubt thinking of Jesus' own words back in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 25 and 26, where our Lord says, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world 
will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then again, in St. Luke's Gospel, our Lord Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 25. So what St. Paul is saying to the Colossians is, if you really want to live, if you really want abundant life, both here and forever, if you want that, if you want to be part of the feast that Isaiah talks about, then you must die to yourself and hide your life in Christ. Another passage that we read at the vigil last night, Romans chapter 6, verse Verse 4 goes like this. St. Paul says, We are buried, therefore, with him, that is Jesus, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This type of death to self requires trusting Jesus, letting him set your priorities, letting him set your political views, letting him set the use of your finances, your capacities, all of yourself. In a way, the world is right. Change is necessary and required. But where the world is completely wrong is that that change can never be achieved. That hill can never be climbed. That objective can never be taken. It can only be received as a gift a gift won on the cross on Good Friday and sealed with the resurrection on Easter Sunday. You see, this is the paradox. To be actually human, to truly have self-actualization, you have to eternally trust yourself to Jesus. You have to give up yourself into his hands. And you must trust that your best life will not be in this world but in the world to come. Oh, you'll have joy here in Christ, but ultimately this is just the beginning of the story. Eternity is the rest. This is why the Easter liturgy reminds us not just about Jesus' resurrection, but what that resurrection means to us. The fruit of that resurrection is this rich feast that we gain through baptism. St. Basil of Seleucia preached in his Easter homily only 350 years after Christ this, and it remains true today. Christian, your baptism is the promise of the life of heaven. By your immersion, you imitated the burial of the Lord, but when you came out of the water, you were conscious only of the reality of resurrection. Grace transforms you and transforms all that you are. Grace transforms us and it's like a seed placed in the womb. It refashions everything. As we're dipped in the font, it refashions all who go down into the water. 
as metal is recast in a furnace, it transforms us. It reveals to them the mysteries of immortality and seals them with the pledge of resurrection. Dear Christian here today, you might not remember your baptism. You might remember your confirmation. But whether you do or you don't, never forget the significance of what Jesus has done for you. Christ has won the victory. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Your life is hidden in Christ. You are his. And all the riches of the Father's feast are yours forever. He rejoices over that. Do not be enchanted or dismayed by the temptations and fleeting things of this world. Follow Christ as a servant in this world, wherever he leads you, knowing where your true joy lies. And when you forget this from time to time, as we all do, stop and remember that God's grace is implanted in you. That's his promise. It's transforming you. It's bringing forth new life in you. In a way, in this short life, you're like a baby in the womb, growing into all that God's fashioned you to be. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Amen.